0: Uh, Well, it's good to be with you this morning. My name is John. I've I've really enjoyed being with uh, many of you this weekend. The the retreat was a lot of fun. It's good to talk and hear what life is like um, in Wichita these days. I grew up uh, across the river in Missouri, in Kansas City. And my dad, who's an artist, I I told many of you, we we drove probably two or three times a year into Wichita. He he had a, a gallery. He was showing some of his paintings, and all through when I was growing up. So I've been here tons. It's just weird coming in to Wichita, not in a 1985 Toyota Tercel station wagon, which was blue. I mean, and not like dark blue. Is that black? Is that No, it's blue. It was like day blue. It stood out. And, uh, but so it's been, it's been really sweet um, to be with you and spending time with your leaders. You have, you have a great staff and a great team, and so I hope you feel blessed by them. <clears throat> well, on this, on, on this past weekend, we talked a lot about uh, performative life and the spiritual life with Christ that's hidden with Christ. And one of the themes that was coming up regularly was the theme of wholeness and spiritual wholeness, whole, wholeheartedness. One, one of the ways in which the Bible talks about this theme is, is through the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and what? Strength. Right? It's a, it's a command, if you think about what that phrase I mean, many of you knew that. It just rolled off your tongue. But that command is asking for the whole person. Not just to love God with your imagination or your intellect, but to love him with your emotional life. Not just to love him in your, your, your outer life, your public parts of your life, but the, the quiet, the private parts of your life as well, a whole, a whole heart. Now, when we, when we think about that, that might at, at, at first seem really restrictive. You've got to love God with just everything all the parts of your life, crushing maybe even feels like. And, but what, what the Bible seems to say, and I think what human experience shows, is that however much you can give your life in love for God, all of it over to God, insofar as you can do that, you will be free, actually. There's a level of freedom and peace and rest. The, the opposite of a whole heart, if you think about, if you read through the Psalms, is this image of a fragmented heart, a heart that is, is, has dual allegiances, that loves and worships God in one moment, but trusts in the world and its promises in another moment, where outwardly it looks one way. You, you, the longer you're a Christian, you can kind of learn what it means to kind of look like a Christian. You know what to wear, you know how to talk, you know how to maybe posture a body, to look humble, right? We know how to look humble. We know how to talk like we're humble and not have any sort of humility. And that's a really dangerous place. And so Jesus is trying here in Matthew 5 to to try to, to lead us out of a fragmented heart into a whole heart. The Lord wants to begin to create a a unity of desires in your inner being. So what does God, what does God do in your heart to make it whole? What does it look like? What's true on the outside is also true on the inside. What you see about me in public places is also true about me in quiet, hidden places. So I wonder if we can just consider together this morning, how do we put ourselves in the way of this renewing power of God to make a whole heart? Because it's God who does this. You can't grit your teeth into a whole heart. But what renewal looks like, and I know you all talk a lot about renewal here, which I'm really grateful for renewal in many ways is how do how am i putting myself in the way of god's renewing power what am i doing there and, and so there's just a few ingredients i think that jesus points out in in this passage that i think are really helpful in thinking through how do we put ourselves in the way of god's renewing power and the first ingredient is is to make jesus central now I know that's probably not very controversial a City Life Church, and <laughs> right, make Jesus the main thing. All right, tell me more. You know what? How is that controversial? But if you think about what Jesus is actually saying here in verse 17, where He says, "Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've actually come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them." Is it okay if we do some theology just for a minute? Are you awake? You're not paying attention to the Chiefs game right now, right? <laughs> like 30 people went, Oop, click. <laughs> oh, click. I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. You're, you're fine. You're free. Um, when Jesus says law and prophets, do you know what he means? He's obviously, when he says, talks about the law, he's obviously talking about the the law that God gave Moses in the Exodus, right, the Ten Commandments. But when he talks about the prophets, there are the prophets, but when he's talking about the law and the prophets, he's really talking about the prophets' interpretation of the law. Because it's got, it got mixed up throughout the history of Israel. And the prophets are coming in in a history of time when, when Israel has not been faithful. They've been going through idolatrous seasons. and. The prophets are looking back on the law and interpreting the law. This is what faithfulness to God looks like. So when the Bible talks about the law, we're thinking maybe just rules, the ethical parts of our life. But when you read the account of the Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, What you're finding is God talks more about not just rules, but a relationship. This is a covenant. I'm making a way to where I can be with my people because God's a holy God. He's a just God, and we as humans, we tend to have a fairly unholy heart. Tend towards injustice. Tend towards idolatry and the desires of our own hearts and not following after the desires of God's heart. God was holy, and so the way in which God could abide with his people was to make laws that would make them a just people and sacrifices that would cover their sins. So to follow the law was really trying to sustain a deep and abiding relationship with God and God keeping a deep and abiding relationship with his people. Now, by the time the history of Israel gets to the prophets, all right, Things have not gone well. They have not been faithful to God. They have not been faithful to God's law. And there is both a moral and theological crisis that's happening in the nation of Israel. The the moral one is that they're just falling apart morally. They're not not following the law. They're not following the sacrifices. They're not following God's Sabbaths. There's a moral crisis. At the same time, and here's here's the theological crisis. At some point in the prophet's, the temple has been destroyed. Now think about this for a minute. The temple is the, the place of worship. It's like the concentration of God's abiding covenant presence. The holy place where we worship and we make sacrifice to cover and atone for my sins. And that's gone. So there's a moral crisis that they're, they're not following God's laws And there's no means to atone for their sins. How can God be present with his people? Do you see the crisis here? Do you see the tension? There's no meaningful way to imagine that God can be with us. And so that's the context in which Jesus is talking about fulfilling the law. I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. Jesus is saying the question is not that the law will continue, it's how it will continue. And here's here's the controversy, right? Here's the controversial point. Jesus is describing himself as the fulfillment of the law. Now, that's wild. Just for a minute, imagine I came in here from New York City, and I said, brothers and sisters, I am the fulfillment of the law. You would send me back on a plane really quick wouldn't you and here's jesus coming it's wild it's controversial i'm the way in which if you want to be close and have communion with god i'm the way so listen if one of the reasons why this was this was a little bit difficult for people because if you were a faithful israelite the question of what is the fulfillment of the law, they would say, my obedience to it. I, me being obedient to the law is fulfilling the law. The outcome of that fulfillment of my obedience is communion with God. That's how, I'm, that's how I have an abiding relationship with God. And So listen to what Jesus says. Me, I'm the fulfillment of the law, not your obedience. I'm the temple without that that got him in trouble I'm the place of the concentrated covenant presence of God I'm the place of sacrifice I'm the place of atonement and forgiveness do you see what's happening For, for a first century believer the law was so central to knowing and being with God and the fulfillment of the law was my obedience to it. I had to be faithful. And Christ comes in and displaces the law as central and puts in himself. That's wild. Kind of you understand why they crucified him, Right? And through his life, his perfect obedience to the law, his sacrifice on the cross, perfect and eternal in nature, fulfills all the requirements of the law. If fulfillment was up to me and my obedience to the law, we'd just constantly be anxious, am I doing enough? Am I faithful enough? Am I holy enough? Have I done the right things? Have I cared for the poor enough? Have I cared about justice issues enough? Have I, have I, have I made up for all the things I've done wrong? Do you see? And here, Jesus says, I am the sacrifice. I am the fulfillment once and for all. My burial happened, and it's finished. My resurrection happened. It's finished. I've ascended to the right hand of the Father, and I'm praying for you, and it's finished. So that means two things when we're thinking about wholeness. Remember a little bit we're talking about wholeness. Remember, and when we're thinking about wholeness, there's two things that that leads us to. One, when when Matthew says that Christ fulfills the law, that means that we cling more closely to Christ than we do to to the moral obligations of the law. We cling to Christ more than the law. Look, your, your holiness matters, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. But to be close with God, we cling to Jesus. We cling, firstly, to our, not to our moral structures, but to Christ. We don't just, we, we don't just have our, our, our moral rules and obligations and then just put Jesus on top of that. He is who we cherish. He, he's our highest love, our prize. And the law condemns and exposes, but Jesus forgives and heals. The law crushes, and Jesus was crushed for us. Paul says those who live under the law are cursed, but those who live in Christ are blessed. We hold on to Christ. Christ is central. And that leads to another one that when Matthew says that Christ fulfills the law, listen, that means that Jesus is more important than your obedience. Does that feel weird to say? Like, It's Well, I don't know. My obedience is pretty important. If you're in Christ, when Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead, he defeated the power of the law that could condemn you, and distance you from God. Holding on to Christ is more important than holding on to my obedience. Can I say it even further, maybe differently? When you sin, it doesn't diminish Christ's accomplishment for you. And that also means when you're holy, it doesn't enhance Christ's accomplishment for you. It's all Christ all the way through. Your sin doesn't diminish it, and your holiness doesn't enhance it. It's just Jesus. So when Jesus is coming and saying, I am the fulfillment of the law, do you understand what he's saying saying That Why that's so important? And you can maybe see if you've been formed, maybe, because I even feel uncomfortable saying Jesus is more important than your obedience, because that feels dangerous. But he has to be. Now, there's two errors that the New Testament is really um, really clear about that we can't go. We can't go these two ways. One, one error is to relax the commands then. If, that's, if this is true, then verse 19, he says, therefore, those who relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom. Let's call this licentiousness. Right? And then the other in verse 20 is to have a kind of scribe and Pharisee level righteousness. Do you understand these two errors? One is to relax the commands, to be indifferent to them. I mean, if Jesus did it, I don't have to. If, if Jesus has accomplished everything, then, you know, what, do I, what am I obligated towards? Nothing. I'm free. On the other hand, your righteousness could look a little bit like the scribes and the Pharisees. You can get kind of anxious about making sure that I'm following all the rules. If you if you know the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes were the, the theological experts. They they knew they knew how to connect every dot. They won all the Bible trivia awards, you know, these people. They were brilliant. The Pharisees were a little different. They were like the, the pragmatists. Like, okay, let's get boots to the ground practical. What kind of life do I need to live? And they were, they were a reformist movement. They, they made sure there was moral clarity. And so when Jesus is talking about these two groups, they might have understand themselves differently from one another, but it is one way of life that the law was central. And in fact, the law was so central, they were so anxious about breaking any law, they would create laws around laws and rules around laws around laws, you know? Barriers that you can never get in because you're, you're so far from breaking rules. So then to speak, Jesus goes, he goes, what you need is actually a righteousness that surpasses that, which at first sounds crushing. You want me to What? Because they're pretty meticulous. Can I put a pin in that and come back to that a little bit later? Just bookmark it. Jesus calls us to have a greater righteousness than the Pharisees and scribes. But these two errors, a licentiousness and a legalism, both are heart issues. They both expose how you feel about God. If you are a legalist, it assumes that God just owes you something for your goodness. It's a very transactional relationship. That you put on your good behavior and your good behavior puts God in your debt. Or the licentious, right? It's very dismissive of God's desires. God desires a certain kind of life for you, and at some point being indifferent to that, you know, if I my wife Jenna I could say I love Jenna, but if I don't care about what she desires at wants, that's not love. It exposes our, our hearts to Him. Legal, licentiousness is a sort of dismissive of God's desires. Legalism is a transactional relationship with God, and neither one of them have a kind of covenantal love with God. A self-giving love. And both are at the same root. Sinclair Ferguson, he said, uh, licentiousness and legalism are non identical twins from the same mother. He says, both the legalists and the licentious assume that God is unwilling to fully bless, that his love is unconditional. And here's what he means it, for a legalist, they will bear heavy burdens of obedience in order to experience god's love they assume that he's stingy with his love with his love and his blessings unless i'm obedient enough it assumes that god's stingy with his love the licentious will cast off all burdens assuming that god is really ultimately not satisfying it believes that god can forgive my sin but he probably won't satisfy my desires I will need to find that elsewhere." Both miss. Both miss God. And both have a fragmented devotion, a fragmented heart that's needing wholeness. For the Pharisee and the scribe, it's it's all outward behavior, keeping rules, but it was disconnected from an inward vitality. Do you remember what Jesus called them? Whitewashed tombs, this image that this tomb looks really beautiful on the outside. Don't go inside. It's all death and decay. Or the licentious, you may have beliefs and convictions about God, but it's really disconnected with any sort of life decisions. Your real love is what you really give your life to. Now maybe you can distance yourself. Maybe you can say in your heart, thanks be to God, I'm not like those people. But I wonder if you can maybe see where maybe your, your, your heart has an impulse towards. And there's a, there's a way that we oftentimes try to correct the error, right? The, the impulse is if you're licentious, well, what you need is just a little bit of legalism to kind of bring you back to center or maybe if you're you're licentiousness what you need or legalist you need a little bit of licentiousness to kind of free you up so because you know we're all good midwesterners it's in the middle right that's what we need you can't you can't resolve a le- or you can't heal a legalist heart with licentiousness and you can't heal a licentious heart with legalism you need Christ it's not a it's not a middle way which is why Jesus talks about a greater righteousness. He, when he says you got to have a greater righteousness than the scribes and Pharisees, he's not tried, he doesn't say, hey, you got to try to beat them at their own game. It's a completely different game. So when he says he's calling for a kind of life that goes beyond simply outward appearances, but it's a whole life discipleship where he, 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 gives, he gives real... I, we didn't read this passage, but right after... Uh, verse 20, Jesus gets into some real life examples like lust and hatred. It's just something that people, not us, them, but people deal with, right? He begins each section by saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you." you. Do you remember him saying this in the Sermon on the Mount? Right? You have heard it said, don't murder. That's the law. That's Moses, right? But I say to you, don't be angry, which is language, not just like, oh, I got really frustrated in that situation. It's a heart of hatred. You have heard it said, don't commit adultery. That's the law. That's Moses. But I say to you, Jesus says, don't lust. Now, on the appearance, it looks like Jesus is just intensifying the law. Right, Moses said this, but I got something even harder. Jesus is not trying to be a more hardcore Moses. He's being more interior than Moses. Do you know what I mean by this? The law that it's just 10 commandments, don't lust, don't murder. Those are outward behaviors. Those are real clear. But Jesus is trying to get the sin behind the sin. Jesus says, don't. I mean, he's trying to get you to pay attention to not simply what's on the outward behavior, but the inward desires. In other words, hatred and lust, is, it's the same source material as murder and adultery. It's the same DNA strand, the same family tree. For example, I wonder how many of us we have a coworker where if you were to describe your emotional posture towards them, it would be hatred. It's that person you know, you get in arguments with, not in person, but maybe in the shower. <laughs> Those are perfect arguments, right? You win every single time, right? Because you can kind of rewind. I was like, "Oh no, that didn't work. Let me say it differently. And it's the zinger. Just so you know, if you laugh, you know you've… <laughs> Jesus, Jesus is trying to get you to see that you're not just distorting and destroying your heart there. You're dishonoring God. You may not have committed adultery, but your imagination towards others… It, You're disfiguring the image of God in someone, and you're dishonoring Christ. There's both objectification of that person and dishonoring of, of God's image. Listen, Jesus wants to take all these fragmented, disconnected parts in your heart and Parts that honor and follow Christ in some part in some measure of your life, and then parts that indulge the desires of your flesh and the other parts of your life and just make them whole. Have a kind of greater unity that where you where you follow and you love one thing. That you aren't one thing in public and another thing in private, one thing in your outer life and another thing in your inner life, where you sing of God's goodness. You don't trust God's goodness during the week. Christ calls us to himself. Listen, okay, Jesus has fulfilled the law. We don't have to prove ourselves anymore. His obedience is more important and effective than ours. We've said that, right? Now listen, if you are free from condemnation in Christ, would you just allow the Spirit to come in and expose what needs to be healed so that he can heal it? Because that's what we're afraid of, right? If we're afraid of, of, of the fragmented parts being seen, we're going to be condemned. In Christ, there is now therefore no what? Would you just let him in? You're free from condemnation. If you're exposed, you're going to be okay. In fact, healing is the only end for you. Forgiveness and sweetness and peace and rest. When he exposes, he does so not to heal, I'm sorry, not to condemn, but to heal. When he exposes, he beautifies. He doesn't aim to humiliate you, to glorify you, not diminish you. He's good. Isn't he good? Would you let him in and then heal to be free of the anxious life that attempts to maintain all the fragmented parts, like just trying to maintain it? Would you just experience renewal instead? Listen, last week, I hurt my back. I'm 42, and I was trying to exercise. And I was holding something heavier than I probably should have been carrying. I got bumped, and it it just happened, and I hit the ground. And I was in a lot of pain. It took me like 30, 45 minutes to put my socks and shoes on in the locker room. I was sitting next to someone who was a good 45 years older than me, and he put his socks and shoes on so fast. <laughs> and I just thought, I'm so excited to join the human race again, but I don't know. I don't know if it's ever. I just, you know, you, your back is so whole, just, it seems to be connected with everything in your body. And it has a way to completely defend define what your future is going to be like. I just, I couldn't imagine ever putting my socks on again. (laughs) Listen, I know maybe for some of you, you may be looking around and you may be seeing people who you imagine are just so, so whole. And you're aware right now in this moment of the the fragmented parts and you can never imagine what wholeness looks like. Would just being free of that anxiety looks like, of that shame and the guilt and the fear and the sin. Can I just tell you, the fragmentation of your heart, your sin and your shame, that's not the end of your story. That's not going to be the end of you. Christ and His glory is your future. Your sin is not going to have the last say. Your shame isn't going to have the last say. There is no condemnation in your future. It's only Christ and his glory. So you're free right now to allow the spirit in to do some inspection, to bring things out in order to heal. And that may just mean you need to find someone before you leave to have them pray for you, lay hands on you. And experience maybe for the first time a vision where there might be some deeper freedoms than you've ever experienced. Can I pray for us?